0: Today is from the 13th chapter of Hebrews, verses 8 through 16. In your Pew Bible, it will be found on page 853. It will also be on the screen. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister to tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, Bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. May God bless the reading of his word. morning. Hello, hello,
1: hello. There we go. So, welcome this morning to ICP. We're finishing off our Advent series entitled Glorious Dirt Today. And the title of today's message is The Challenge of Christmas. You may not be particularly familiar with this passage of Scripture, uh, especially not reading it as a Christmas text. But what I want to do this morning is touch on three things together. I want to touch on the defense of Christmas, the offense of Christmas, and the call of Christmas. Now, as I was preparing this message, I, um, I had a really strong sense of God's holiness. I was actually... Uh, you might laugh at this. I was walking my dog, and God speaks to me a lot while I'm walking, uh, Aston. And uh, I was thinking about this, you know, as I do as I'm preparing, and, and it just hit me. I, start, I, I just shivered. It felt like I'm touching on something that is really holy this morning. And if you've ever experienced the, the holiness of God in that kind of way, there's, there's almost a sense of danger to it. And I think part of talking about danger and Christmas, part of the danger of Christmas is that we celebrate it only as a past event. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born. He came and left us with a wonderful set of teachings, a great moral example. How nice. And now we do things to commemorate that long ago historical event. But there's such a deceptive danger in having this kind of contemptuous familiarity with with the the season that we celebrate every year. And one one of the things I've been trying to drive across in this series is that Christmas is about far more than just this sweet little miracle. Christmas is about the grand miracle, the central miracle of the whole story. God becoming man. And what that means, as we've been exploring, is, is something absolutely earth-shattering. And at the center of Christianity is not a book, is not a feeling, it's not a way of life. At the center of it all is a person. At the center of it all is a man that by his very presence divides history by his very presence divides humanity and he demands our attention undivided and so this this passage begins with quite a well-known phrase jesus christ the same yesterday today and forever The baby whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, this isn't just an old historical event. The baby that we celebrate at Christmas every year is still alive. He's still alive. It's not, Christmas is not just the celebration of the, the, um, the beginning of a particular life. It's the birth of the one who is life itself. First John, uh, John, John 1.4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is life. Life is in him. And he's still alive now still incarnate, still a human being. You may not have realized that before, but he never ceased to be a man. He never ceased to be human. And it's that life stepping into history that's right at the center of it all. This passage that we've read, Hebrews 13, interpreters have had kind of a hard time with this passage, understanding really what it's talking about. And it it can almost seem like, if you're reading it for the first time, it it can almost seem like a a loose set of statements. They don't really seem to clearly follow on one another. And you're probably thinking, and they also don't have anything to do with Christmas, right, Ian? You're just kind of clutching at straws here. But (laughs) For instance, the next verse after uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. What is that all about? Now, when I was studying this, I didn't see at first how it was linked, but it eventually dawned on me how that first statement of Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever is intimately linked with this next statement. And even though it's, it's hard to really reconstruct what was going on for the original audience, we don't have all the information that we would like to have, we don't even know exactly who the author was, but even so, I think the point comes through clearly, and what I think the point is, is that as soon as you begin to move away from the anchor that's in Jesus, flesh and blood incarnate, as soon as you begin to move away from that anchor, you're very quickly swept away by all kinds of strange teachings. I mentioned uh, Alison McGrath's book on heresy a couple weeks ago, and he pointed out that all of the classical heresies of of Christian history have come out of either denying Christ's full divinity or denying his full humanity. As soon as you step away from Jesus the incarnate Son of God being the same today as yesterday and always being that way, you're in danger of being swept away by all sorts of strange ideas, strange teachings. And that phrase uh, that, that was translated carried away, it's linked to, picture a river, a strong river current that sweeps everything away in its path. And I think this is often exactly what it's like. I've seen quite a lot of examples in my life, lots of people I've, I've known, that have, this has happened to them. It, they've gotten swept away by by strange, getting into strange kinds of teachings. False teaching, it rarely begins with someone saying, I want to construct a false teaching. <laughs> it usually starts out of well-intentioned people that... that want good they 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 want to do good but taking some kind of eccentric thing something that should be minor and making it the center and as it becomes the center of attention it becomes a distraction it begins to be all-consuming and it begins to sweep people away i've seen how people can get this fixation on on certain things i And it becomes this overbearing kind of like obsession for them and they end up, that whole person ends up getting driven off course. And what I think this is telling us today is that the incarnation, the message of Christmas is front and center and it has to stay in that position otherwise we get swept away by currents that we we can't really control, we can't really foresee. It goes on to say, it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is no benefit to those who do so. And when you read the book of Hebrews, it's a letter, it may have been a sermon originally. One of the central features of Hebrews is this distinction between what was the symbol and what was the reality. The priestly system, it goes one by one through all these things, the priestly system, the temple. Moses and the law, the sacrifices. It says these were all symbols. They were foreshadowings that Jesus has now, in in the final days, has fulfilled. Jesus is the reality that the symbols pointed towards. Jesus himself actually said, one that is greater than the temple is among you. And so part of the message of Hebrews is, Once the reality has stepped into the picture, why would you carry on turning to the symbols? The reality is here. And it says, our our hearts to be strengthened by grace. And that word grace, we met a couple weeks ago talking about gifts because it's the word hadis, it's translated as gift in other places. And we saw a couple weeks ago, we went in depth, you can go back and listen to it, Jesus is that gift. And so you can paraphrase a little bit of what the writer's saying by the best thing for us to do is to be strengthened, to be, and, and that's to be made secure by the gift of Christmas, by Jesus Christ in flesh and blood. Why is it better to be strengthened by that than by symbols and by ceremonial foods and that kind of stuff? Because he is the true and better version of everything that those things symbolize. He's the true... And better version of everything that the Old Covenant pointed forwards to. You get a chance and you remember, look up a, a video on YouTube by, uh, it's a clip from a sermon from Tim Keller. It's called The Bible Is Not About You. Um, it's good, it's only a couple minutes long. Definitely watch it. It shows one by one how Jesus fulfills and is the better and truer version of all of the Old Testament heroes of the faith all the pictures that we find in the old testament jesus fulfills them he brings the reality that they were pointing towards he is the gift and so i think the point is don't get caught up so much in the symbols that you miss the reality and it's so easy to do in fact jesus spoke to the pharisees he said You diligently search the scriptures because you believe that in them you'll find eternal life. And all the while you refuse to come to me that I might give you life. Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures looking for eternal life and all the while you're missing the reality. The signposts are pointing to me. And yet it's so easy to take the symbols and... Avoid the reality. It's so easy to even take the things of God and use them to avoid actually having to deal with God. Especially if you're involved in any kind of church ministry, it's so easy to just do the Christian stuff while neglecting your actual time with God. That one hits me, in particular. (laughs) The life is in him. The light is in him. And as soon as you decentralize the living, breathing reality of Christ, who's the the same yesterday, today, and forever, who's not just a man that came 2,000 years ago, he's not just someone that, that morphed back into some spirit when he ascended, but he's still fully God, fully man. If you decentralize that, if you take away the reality from the center that, everything points towards, well, of course you begin to drift off course. You lose the anchor. And that's why it says, it's better to be strengthened by the real gift. It's better to be made secure by the anchor. Another verse in Hebrews talks about we have an anchor of the soul. And that's Christ. Our grounding is in the incarnation. I love the words of... of uh, 1 John 1, that it says, that which we've heard with our ears, that we've seen with our eyes, that we've touched with our hands. He's talking about material, flesh and blood, Jesus. This is the center of it all. Not an idea, not a feeling, not a system of uh, how to live your life well, but a man, a person, standing in the middle of it all. And so that's why it's important to defend Christmas because the miracle of Christmas is right at the center of it all. And if you get away from the incarnation, you go into uh, strange territory. You miss the reality for the symbols. But it brings us to our second point, which is the offense of Christmas. Because Christmas, right from the beginning... It's so central, but right from the beginning, it's so confrontational. Christmas, these days, had become this very kind of sanitized, nice, cuddly, family-friendly holiday season. But if you strip away, and we've talked about this a little bit in the previous weeks, but if you strip away some of the mythology, all the the hallmark kind of uh, sentimentality, And you actually read the accounts in Matthew and Luke of just how Jesus' birth happened, the circumstances surrounding it. You'll be shocked at how much, if you you go look for it tonight as you go home, how much controversy is surrounding his birth, how much injustice, how much violence is surrounding his birth, how much fear. You have this poor, unmarried teenage girl he becomes mysteriously pregnant. And of course, what do you think her, her village thinks? What do you think her family thinks? They know where babies come from. They're not going to buy her story of, oh, the Holy Spirit did it. <laughs> and so we can imagine her being judged, being rejected. The prophecies over the child that she's going to have have a lot of violence and turmoil in them too. It says that um, he's going to cause the, 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 the bringing down of lots of people uh, division and even uh, a sword that's going to pierce Mary's soul too giving birth in Bethlehem she's very soon after forced to, to flee to, to Africa as a refugee where she spent it says they spent several years there um, fleeing from a corrupt and murderous king who decided it was worth killing all the babies in the town of Bethlehem to try and make sure that they got the one that he heard was a rival king. So, uh, teenage pregnancy, uh, unplanned babies, rejection by family, murderous kings, refugees in North Africa. This isn't exactly what you find on a Hallmark Christmas card, is it? (laughs) I've never seen any of those things on a card. Jesus was never really a safe, nice figure. I love that expression in in the Tales of Narnia. Aslan is not a a, a tame lion. Jesus was never safe. No one that ever came into contact with Jesus, when you read the, the Gospels, no one that ever came into contact with Jesus ever just liked him. They either... There's one of two reactions most commonly. Either they hated him and they wanted to kill him or they adored him and began to worship him with their lives. Two extremes. No one ever just came away from Jesus and said, like, oh yeah, he's all right. He's a, he's a cool, cool guy. <laughs> if Jesus really existed and really did and said the things that are written in the gospel, then we're confronted with a very serious question by this this time of Christmas. We're confronted with this question of, who exactly is this baby born in Bethlehem? Jesus, in in Matthew 16, he asked his disciples, he just finished feeding 5,000, and he asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and others, others say you're one of the prophets of old that's, that's come back. And then it says he turned and faced them and he said, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Christmas confronts us with that same question. Who exactly is this child? Well, we know for one thing that he's the most influential person in history. Time magazine uh, wrote about that a few years ago. But if anyone wants to challenge that idea, Louis C.K., the comedian, he, he, uh, he said, just ask them, why is the year called 2018? We divide our time by this person's birth. And that's true all around the globe. Uh, pretty much time is measured from his birth so he's the most influential person in history the second thing we know is that jesus was was not not just a legend it's quite popular to say that uh, on a on a popular level you know jesus jesus never really existed but um i was interested to find out when i i I did a master's in history in, in in the uk no serious historians actually question whether or not jesus actually existed historically it's not, a, it's not a historical question. Uh, it's, it's an accepted fact. We know it from lots of different reliable resources that I, uh, uh, sources that I can't get into, but he wasn't a legend. But then the question is, okay, but did he really do the things that it says? Did he really say these things? And again, the answer to that is that we have very good evidence. There's a science called textual criticism which tells us the Bible that we have today is... certain to be exactly what was originally written down by the people that knew him in the first generation of those people that were still alive that knew him. And so, despite what, what some people claim, what's written about Jesus, these are not legends and myths that slowly developed over hundreds of years so that all these things eventually got attributed to him. And eventually, 300 years later, when some Roman emperor commanded that it be so. Everyone started believing that he was God. No, they believed it right from the start. The people that knew him, the Jews, the people that were most predisposed of any people on earth to believe that God would never become a man, would have nothing to do with humanity, the Jews believed that this person was God. His own brother. Imagine convincing your brother that you're actually God. They didn't believe to begin with. But after the resurrection, when they met him, resurrected, glorified, they believed. James and Jude became leaders in the church. And so these are not legends that developed over hundreds of years. These are things that were believed right from the start by the people that knew him, that walked with him, written by people that stood to lose everything by writing these things. And most of them did. Most of them were executed for their claim that Jesus really was alive. And so... Virtually everyone is willing to admit that Jesus is a historical figure. He's not a legend. Virtually everyone you meet, just in general life, will also, I'm willing to bet, be willing uh, to admit that Jesus was also a good man. He was a good moral example. He lived a life of integrity. He showed us what living a good life, a moral life, looks like, and You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who, who wouldn't say that Jesus was a, a good guy. Some others, including Muslims and, and, and some other groups, would, say, would go a step further They'd say he was more than just a good man. He was also a prophet. He revealed things about God. He, he taught us truth about God's will. And so he deserves to be revered. And that's exactly what the crowds say. They say he's a good man, like John the Baptist, He's a moral teacher. Maybe he's even a prophet. Maybe he even points the way to God. But with this question about who is this child, it's not enough to take the crowd's word for it. Jesus turns to each of us and says, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the problem with the crowd's answer is that they ignore most of what Jesus actually did and said about himself. If you actually pay attention to what he claimed, then the one thing we can't say is that he was simply a, a moral teacher who pointed the way to God. Because when you look at what he did, when you look at what he said, Jesus didn't only claim to be a good moral teacher, he claimed to actually be God in our midst. The very power that created the universe, coming man and living among us. And so that's more than a prophet. Prophets point the way to God. Jesus came and said, I am God. He came to be God. And he's the only person that actually claimed that believably. No other founder of any major world religion has ever actually claimed to be God. Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, they claim to point the way to God. Jesus is the only one that stands and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it's easy to claim that. Lots of people claim that to this day. They usually are in psychiatric wards. And it's easy to say that, right? It's much harder to back it up. And what we see is that Jesus not only claims it and he does claim it, Uh, I don't have time to to show you right now, but lots of different places where Jesus says He claims to be God. Not only does He do that, He does things that only God can do. He claims to forgive sins. He controls the weather. He raises the dead. He he raises Himself from the dead. So He says it. He does things to back it up. And people worshipped Him as God right from the start. Thomas falls at his feet, for instance. Thomas, doubting Thomas, he falls at his feet when he finally sees Jesus resurrected and he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus is not correcting. Other places in the Bible say Jesus is clearly God. John, John 1, uh, the, the prologue to, to the, the book of John, John 1, 1-14, uh, is, is a classic place. Colossians 2 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of deity. Titus 2 says, says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Jesus Christ. And so, looking at all that, some of you recognize where I'm getting this from. C.S. Lewis pointed out, um, when you look at what Jesus actually claimed about himself, we're only left with three options. We know he's not a legend. Uh, He doesn't leave us the option of just being a good man. So, if Jesus said all these things about himself knowing that they weren't true, well, that makes him a liar. If he said all these things believing that they really were true, when they weren't, well, that would make him a lunatic. But if you can't go down either of those routes, and he says these things, and they really are true, then the only option available is that he really is the Lord. And so this is... is It's quite famous. It's called the trilemma. Liar, lunatic, or lord? You have to deal with the legend first. But this is where we can ask, can a liar really make the kind of moral impact to go down as the most morally upright person in all of history that's universally revered as as exhibiting everything that goodness is? Does that ring? Uh, does that sound like a liar? When you read his words, when you see his life recorded by the people that knew him, does that do you get the sense of a swindler, of, of, of a charlatan? Can a historical lunatic continue speaking to us today about all the things that really matter in life? Can a crazy person speak at that level of clarity, of wisdom? of of profound uh, reality. And so if you can't stomach either of those two, then what you're left with is the best and the only option is that he really is who he says he is. He really is Lord. And if that's true, then it changes everything. This is part of the challenge of Christmas. If that's true, it changes everything. If he really is who he says he is, Nothing is the same. What it means, and, and the whole of the book of Hebrews testifies and, and, and goes into this, and the passage goes on to say that we're reading here, in Christ, we serve the reality, the true and better fulfillment of all the, the, the images and symbols of Scripture. And uh, in verse 11, the, the writer mentions the the sacrificial system. He talks about uh, the Day of Atonement where the high priest would would slaughter the animals and then take the, the bodies out to be burned outside of the city. And he's talking about the whole sacrificial system. But the story that began at Christmas, what begins at Christmas ends at Calvary. And so he draws this comparison just in the same way as the high priest takes those bodies and, and offers them a the sacrifice for sin and burns the, 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 the carcasses outside the city. It says, Jesus, God become man, whose story that we already saw, his story begins with violence, it begins with, with controversy, with injustice in his birth. That same Jesus, he offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice. To not make atonement for sin until next year's Day of Atonement, but to make an end once and for all to our slavery to sin and and to evil. And so just like the bodies of the sacrificial animals were taken outside the city to be destroyed, it says Jesus' body was destroyed on a cross outside the city gates. Only by becoming human, one of us at Christmas... Only by that could He represent us truly. Only by the resurrection could He lift us up out of that slavery to sin and death. Jesus' Jesus's birth that caused offense to Herod, it caused offense to, to family, to society. Jesus' birth that caused so much offense, it leads Him to the cross where He takes all the offense of humanity onto Himself. To set us free from. And so, what is our response to all of this? This is where I want to end up today. What is our response? What is the call of Christmas? Verses uh, 13 to 18 begin to tell us, I think. This... uh, I've been wanting to preach on this passage for years, actually. And uh, only now have I felt like God was saying, yeah, this is the one. Uh, I remember when I first read this passage, I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach on it, but I remember the first time I read it, and it absolutely hit me in the gut. There's There's such a weight to it, there's such a power to it, And it's right at the point where it turns and it says, therefore, here's how you should respond. Therefore, let us go out to him, outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. The thing is, the incarnation is not just a fact. It demands a response. If Jesus is alive, if Jesus is Lord, it means he must be followed. If Jesus really is who he says he is, he demands not only fans, not only scholars that know a lot about him, not only hobbyists that dabble in the things that he liked to do, he demands disciples. I want to take the opportunity to mention one of my heroes that I haven't yet mentioned in this series, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the, the Germans can correct my pronunciation later, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my personal heroes. He was a German pastor, theologian, who resisted the Nazis. He was eventually executed. Um, for that resistance, not too far from here actually, a concentration call, uh, camp called Flossenburg. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a book that in, in English it, it's known as The Cost of Discipleship. And he talks about this, that, that um, I'll read you, it's a slightly long quote, but I couldn't really say it any better. He says, because Christ exists, he must be followed. An idea about Christ, a doctrinal system, or religious recognition of grace or forgiveness of sins, does not require discipleship. In truth, it even excludes discipleship. It's inimical to it. One enters into a relationship with an idea by way of knowledge, enthusiasm, perhaps by even carrying it out, but never by personal, personal, obedient discipleship. Christianity, without the living Jesus Christ remains necessarily a Christianity without discipleship. And a Christianity without discipleship is always a Christianity without Jesus Christ. It is an idea, a myth. In other words, it doesn't exist. You take Christ, the living personal reality, you take Christ out of Christianity, there's nothing left. And so this man who divides history, who divides humanity, he demands our undivided devotion. How else could it be if he really is Lord? If he really is who he says he is? And so I want us to to end here with, kind of on a a practical note, looking at nine things that I'm going to run through very quickly that we see in verses 13 to 18 about what it looks like to answer that call, what it looks like to be a disciple. To be a disciple, number one, is not to be still, to stay still. It says, let us go to him. To be a disciple inherently requires following. Following involves movement. It's active. It's outward focused. It's, it's a picture of Jesus out in front leading the way and his students, his disciples, his apprentices following him. Sometimes we, 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 we picture um, going out to where Jesus is. We picture it as kind of leaving the world, escaping from the world. But here we have the opposite picture. Jesus specifically came to the world He was the first one to go. We're really just imitating what Jesus himself did. God is a missionary God. Jesus is the one sent out from God. And so, that's the first thing. A disciple goes. Does not remain still. Secondly, a disciple is not safe. It says we go to him outside the camp. Outside, and and another way to translate camp is is the barracks, the fortified city going out of the safe place. Out beyond where we can expect to to have everything comfortable and and clean and tidy and neat. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. The most famous quote from that book by Bonhoeffer is uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's not a popular message. (laughs) And yet, to be a disciple, it means following him where he is, which is outside of the safety and the comfort and the bubble and the protection. It's going out where you open yourself up to risk. Being a disciple is risky. I don't know if you can exercise faith without an element of risk. Because if you never put yourself in a position where the the success or failure of whatever you're doing depends on God really being faithful, do you really trust Him? How much trust is there if it's never actually any risk involved? And it's not risk for the sake of risk. It's risk for the sake of the most unimaginable reward. Jesus gave pictures of what it's like to to follow him, to be in the kingdom of God. He said it's like a, a man who finds a treasure in a field and he goes and sells everything. He dies, basically, to everything that he has because of the joy of buying that field and getting the treasure. And so... It's the reward of knowing him, of becoming like him. And it says that the reason for that is for our, we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. The city, our safe place, our place of refuge and and fortification is not the world, it's not our earthly city. God is our fortress, God is our city. He is our safe place, our protection. And earlier on it says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is my refuge. And so, a question for us to consider here, what is your city? What is it in your life that when things go wrong, when there's risk, you find yourself turning to? You find yourself relying on? Because that reveals what what your city really is. What is your city? What are you relying on? This is telling us, leave it. Leave it behind. Not for the sake of just going and getting yourself killed. Going because He's a better city. He's a better refuge. He's a better protector. And that's where He is. He is outside of the gate. A disciple doesn't play it safe. In fact, when you, when you read Bonhoeffer's story, playing it safe was exactly what got the church in Germany into a lot of trouble. They were too afraid to disobey the authorities because of a particular reading of a particular verse to actually stand up for justice. And so it led to all this mixture and compromise. So, the third thing, a disciple is not respectable. It says we go out of the city to bear the reproach that he endured. You know what? Bearing the name of Jesus in your life, being associated with him, it has always been and always will be something that at one time or another is going to bring shame on you in a worldly sense. It's going to make people ridicule you. Hopefully you're being ridiculed for him and not just because you're being annoying. <laughs> An obnoxious Christian. But the reality is, Jesus says, if the world has hated me, they'll also hate you. That's something to be expected. And the thing that, that, that really convicts me is there's a lot of people, as we share the gospel, there's a lot of people for whom being associated with Jesus will bring the utmost shame upon them it will bring the utmost reproach from their family from their society from their friends for some it'll even lead to to death threats especially I'm thinking in in, in the Muslim world and uh and but even in our midst here for some people following Jesus being associated with him is going to mean being completely rejected from all their their family, from their social ties. And so the question for us is, is the church, as we're preaching the gospel, calling people to follow Jesus, to be associated with his name, to bear that reproach, are we being that replacement family for that kind of person? Are we being the, the, uh, the kind of society that reflects that new city, that heavenly city that we're awaiting? Are we providing a family? Are we providing a place of refuge? So, a disciple's not still, safe, respectable. A disciple is not part-time. It says, let us continually offer a uh, uh, sacrifice of praise. At all times, we looked at this a lot last week, um, there's no sacred-secular divide in life. All of life is lived for God. So we follow him, not just at holy times, not just at the morning devotions and Sunday uh, meetings, but all of life poured out for him. Romans 12 says the proper response to the love of God and the gospel is for us to be a living sacrifice. Offer your whole self, body, soul, and spirit, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your rational response, it says, your your reasonable response. Worship. And what it what it gives to me is a picture of love. When someone offers themselves to you in love, the proper response is to offer yourself back. It's a betrayal of love to offer anything else back. You offer your whole self, not just spare change. That's what you do for a lover. And so, what does that look like? It doesn't mean everyone here is suddenly going to seminary and becoming a pastor, or becoming a You know, a a traditional missionary in that kind of sense. Far from it. What it means is whatever God has placed you in, whatever calling you have, He says, live it all to me. Offer all of it to me. Whatever your work is, set it apart for God. Start thinking about how can the gospel affect the way I do my work, the way I go about my work, Not only am I sharing the words of the gospel message, but how is the gospel infiltrating the way I carry out my life, the way I I do business, for instance? Let the gospel shape every part of our lives, not part-time. A disciple's not quiet. It says, the fruit of lips that openly acknowledge his name, openly confessing who he is, what he's like, And and it... the words that it uses, it means a relatable way, an understandable way. And what else is the incarnation but God's ultimate way of speaking to us in a way that we can understand? That's the model that we have in the incarnation. And so we're called to be a, be incarnate uh, uh, mouthpieces uh, that, that are living for God, and... Uh, it can be as simple as just being open about what he's doing in your life. It doesn't mean always preaching a three-point sermon to everyone that you meet. It can simply be, man, God's so good. I can't believe he, he, he answered this prayer. Just like an offhand thing, you know? Demonstrating this is a reality in my life. This is a person that I relate to, who is real, that I have a relationship with. Um, so how do we speak of him? Do we speak of him? But how do we speak of him? Do we express how good he is? When we talk about God to people, what's the flavor that we leave with them? Is it, is it a sweet taste? Is it, is it something good that makes someone say, oh, I sounds like they really just chat with God. It sounds like he's really real to them. <laughs> Does it leave that kind of flavor? that someone would want to taste for themselves. That's the fruit of lips that openly acknowledge His name. A, a disciple is not forgetful, negligent. It says, do not forget to do good works. It means being intentional, planning habits into our lives where we can, we can be growing in our walk with Him, growing in our discipleship. Number seven, a disciple is not dead. It says, do good works. James talks about this um, in the most detail, obviously, that faith without works is dead. A disciple is alive. And faith, a disciple shows that they have faith by by obeying, by doing good things that reflect God's character. Doing things in your life that only make sense if God is really alive, if God is really there. And I I forgot to put this in, in the slides, but Uh, Madeline Longle said, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. you ever looked at someone's life and said, the way they live is crazy unless God really exists because they have staked so much on him really coming through. I look at my parents like that and I think, wow, uh, if God's not really there, none of this makes any sense. They're insane. <laughs> uh, a disciple's not quiet, a disciple's not dead. It's faith expressed in words and actions together. Always together. And it says, this is the kind of sacrifice that pleases God. You have to have both together. There's a quote that says, um, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. And that's that's good, it's true, but if you never have the words, then the works have no meaning. If you never have the works, then the words have no substance. So they have to go hand in hand. You have to have both to have a, a full witness of God. Number eight, a disciple's not stingy. It says share what you have. And the word share there is koinonia, the word we use so often for, for fellowship, and it's this picture of sharing a table with someone. Sharing not only physical resources, but sharing yourself with people. Inviting people into your home so that they can share your family life is powerful. Let me tell you, I've, I've, I've seen people's lives transformed. Drug addicts set free from addiction just by witnessing a family that's infused with the gospel. And so you can invite people in to experience fellowship and share what you have. And if our hearts are constantly finding reasons to withhold what we have, well that's that's not the heart of a disciple. That's contrary to that. The heart of a disciple generously gives because it knows it's gener- generously received everything from God. And lastly, finally, I promise A disciple is not alone. Because it says all of this, it says through Christ, continually offer a thanksgiving of praise. Don't forget to neglect, don't don't neglect to do good works. Share what you have. And it's all through him. Remember, the sacrifice is not for sin. The sin offering has already been made once and for all In Jesus. That's the whole point of the book of Romans, uh, the the book of Hebrews, that He is the, the true and better fulfillment of all of that. The sin is covered, it's paid for. What we do in response is offer thanks, we offer gratitude. And we talked about that in the essence of gifts. When you receive a gift, you prove you've received it by giving thanks, by gratitude. And so it sets us free from having to earn God's favor. It sets us free for generous works, good works that reflect his character because the debt is paid for. We're not trying to pay for anything. We're just offering the little that we have in gratitude. And so we're set free to act through him. Let's pray together. I just want to I just want to speak this kind of encouragement over you. As you respond to the challenge of Christmas this year, looked at nine things there of a disciple. As you respond to Christmas, the challenge that's issued, the call that's issued, refuse to be still. Set your heart to go. Refuse to play it safe. Go outside the gate where where Jesus is. Refuse to be respectable because shame in Christ's name is the greatest honor. Refuse to be part-time. Start to begin to see every single moment and area of your life as a way to center yourself on Him. Refuse to be quiet. Open your mouth. Begin to talk simply about God's goodness and love. Refuse to be forgetful. Intentionally begin building habits of speaking praise, doing good. Refuse to have a dead faith. Put it into action by acting as if he can really be trusted. Refuse to be stingy. Share what you have with your brothers and with your neighbors. Refuse to go it alone. Walk with him. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, this challenge that because you really are Lord, we can't be apathetic. We have to answer that question. Who? are you? And if you're Lord, the only proper response is to follow you with our whole hearts, because to know you, to walk with you, is eternal life. Thank you for your love and your blessing
0: that we celebrate at Christmas, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.